Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, May 30th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Huai Train Bui. Hey, everyone. How's it going, guys? You guys doing all right? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a week. It's a week. It's a week. It is a week. It's almost over. It is a short week. But it's been a very rainy week because tornado season is taking over the East Coast anyways. Are you uh, experiencing any of that, HT, in, in New York at all? Oh, actually, I'm in D.C. now. Oh, that's right. So that's right. Uh, yeah. Back at my parents' house. Yeah. But I'm experiencing in bursts. There's a, quite a scary rainstorm just this afternoon. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll stay safe out there. Um, so one of the things that uh, I, I think listeners might be expecting us to talk about is Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, which um, the embargo on the coverage for that has lifted. And uh, if you go to SlashFilm.com right now, you can read tons of coverage from our own Peter Serretta, who has been there, I think, several times at this point. And um, he, he has done so much like deep dive coverage into what people can expect there and sort of reviews of all the food and the rides and everything. So um, we're not going to talk about any of that because Peter's not here and we haven't been to Galaxy's Edge yet. I'm guessing that maybe Monday of next week, instead of doing a water cooler episode, Peter, at that point, will have been for multiple days, I think, to Galaxy's Edge because he's there, or he was... Actually, right now, I think he's there for a press day. Yeah. And he's, then, he's literally there right now, and he'll be there through the weekend. Yeah, yeah. So he'll have a bunch of uh, time to really do a, a full-on you know, investigation of everything that, worthy that there is to talk about there. So I think having him talk about it in full detail early next week will probably be the most beneficial thing, I, I instead of like trying to get him to call in or anything like that, because I... I want to give him the platform to be able to talk about it in like a, a deep nerdy way because I feel like that's what uh, that's the the treatment that listeners deserve at this point. So um, yes, in instead of talking about Galaxy's Edge, we're just going to talk about everything else that's been going on in the world of movies and TV over the past day. And uh, one of the things that we should probably kick the show off with is. Um, Disney, well, I mean, obviously Disney runs everything at this point, but one of their big announcements just hit right before we started recording. Uh, HT, what do we know about another Disney live action remake that's coming soon? 
Well, the next live-action Disney remake will be Snow White. And uh, according to a new report, Disney has tapped Mark Webb as the director for this live-action remake of the 1937 classic, as well as screenwriter Aaron Cressida Wilson, who uh, penned The Girl on the Train. Uh, both, Cressida, uh, both Wilson and Webb are currently in negotiations with uh, Disney to um, work on this adaptation but they are their top choices as of now and it's also reported that benji pasek and justin paul who are the duo behind the award-winning songs for la la land and the greatest showman as well as a recent original song for guy ritchie's live action aladdin will be writing new songs for this movie oh boy that is a lot Mm -hmm. to take in uh so before i go to jacob ht what's your gut reaction to this news my gut reaction is one big shrug. Uh, <laughs> so is I... that is that based on Snow White as a property or the people involved? Well, Snow White as a property, I don't have quite the fondness for uh, compared to a lot of the 90s animated Disney films just because, you know, it, it, I don't have that childhood tie to it as much. I think that it is a great film and it did kick off a centuries-long legacy for Disney. It was the first animated feature film for the studio and basically um, its success propelled Disney to become the behemoth that it is today. And it's a fine film. It definitely is a film that hasn't quite aged uh, that well. It is from 37 so um, and it's very short too so there's just some you know, it's it's something that you can admire, but not something that I necessarily love. Um, but you know, it's a it's a fairy tale, so it's something that's very ripe for uh, reinterpretation, and that's something that has been reinterpreted in the past couple of years because Snow White, the character, is actually in the public domain. So we have had uh, live action films like Mirror Mirror and Snow White and the Huntsman taking on the story uh, to sort of like mixed uh, success. Um, I feel like there hasn't really been a great Snow White story. Although I will say, as one of the few people who watched Once Upon a Time, um, <laughs> the story of Snow White that they did there was actually quite compelling until like the later seasons ruined it. But the way that they did it was they had Snow White as a thief and um, she was kind of more, you know, in your typical modern badass girl. But there was good chemistry between her and Prince Charming and a good, a compelling love story at that. I think um, the Jacob, you might be able to speak to this. I remember reading um, Fables, Bill Willingham's Fables comics, and I think that series, it's been so many years since I read it, which is why I know that you are more familiar with this property than I am, but that started off with like a, sort of like a murder mystery kind of thing involving the Snow White character, right? Uh, yeah, that's such a completely different thing. I mean, Fables is its own comic book world where fairy tales live in the modern day you know, New York City and have their own history and culture. Whereas this just sounds like another live action Disney thing that I cannot get worked up about in any way whatsoever because Mark Webb is like a mayonnaise sandwich of a director. Um, <laughs> oh, the, you, the, have the, to, you have to read your tweet, Jacob, because it was the perfect way to put it. Uh, on Twitter, I, I described it as uh, this, this news is the cinematic equivalent of white rice being served in ice cold water. Uh, <laughs> but somebody also informed me that there's a delicious. Uh, Thai dessert that is technically white rice served in ice cold water. So I'm going to say this is an American fumbling of that recipe. That's the equivalent <laughs> of that. Uh, after Amazing Spider-Man 2, I cannot imagine Mark Webb making a great big budget movie, let alone a 
a good movie at all because I don't think he's made a good movie. I think everything he's made has been subpar, or in the case of Spider-Man 2, uh, just genuinely disastrous. And there's nothing here that seems remotely interesting or exciting. I mean, just do anything but this. Put anybody else on this. I do not like this in any way. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm trying to be as objective as possible about this and look at it from uh, the brightest angle possible. And the idea of, because like you said, like Mark Webb sort of fumbled the Spider-Man uh, franchise so hard. And that's the same kind of thing as what he appears to be stepping into here, which is like, you know, he's a, a filmmaker in like a producer-driven system you know that's like hollywood studio filmmaking on a blockbuster scale where the director maybe is not the the creative driver of the thing it's more like the property itself is the is the is the draw you know is the name brand so i i yeah i'm i'm having trouble coming up with a reason why uh, Mark Webb would be a great fit for this property. Um, HT, yeah. I, I, I cut you off earlier, but continue what you were saying. Oh, no. Yeah. Mark Webb is probably the definition of just a mediocre white male director just kind of stumbling into this this adaptation. I will say I did like 500 Days of Summer. I think that's a good film, but his track record is just so inconsistent. Amazing Spider-Man movies are terrible. I've only seen the first one and it was bad. I just, it was so bad that I just did not want to see the second at all. And um, I will say Gifted wasn't bad. Um, I feel like he might be good sentimental director in some aspects, but um, with Snow White, you have to do more than just sentiment. I feel like you have to pull off all the aspects of this uh, story because it's a story that people don't have quite an investment in and you have to get people invested in it. Um, and also uh, the girl on the train screenwriter, Erin Cressida Wilson, um, I was not a fan of the girl on the train, either the book or the movie. I think it was a minor disaster of a melodrama. Uh, so I don't know whether she also is capable of bringing that story to life. Yeah, she wrote Secretary as well, which is um, not exactly the kind of movie that you would expect from somebody who's <laughs> potentially pinning a live-action Disney movie. Um, but that's a good movie. It's actually a good movie. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a sign. Someone involved in this movie has made something good in the past, even though that yeah. was 2002. I think so, so yeah. There we go. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on this. this. It's also like Snow White. Is that really, you know, I understand that it... it operates as sort of a legacy title for Disney as a company, but is that really something you want to bring up in 2020? A story where, like, a woman dies and, like, a bunch of old creepy men, like, keep her alive, (laughs) keep her corpse alive and, like, enshrine her in glass? I don't know. It's a very strange story, and um, I'm not sure how the the optics of that are going to play in our uh, current culture. It may be something better left to just, like, uh, the era from whence it came, but um, the, the the trick is just to remake Snow White: A Tale of Terror, the Sigourney Weaver starring 1997 uh, horror film take on this material. I have just never go, seen go, this. What is that? Uh, <laughs> it is a not particularly good, but very interesting attempt to make an R-rated, super erotic, bloody horror film adaptation of Snow White. It it is something else. I I'm not sure where it's streaming or if it's streaming. I'd try Amazon first, but it is a thing that exists. I would recommend seeking out 
if you're curious. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, so from one Disney story to another, uh, Toy Story 4 has broken the first of what could be many records, and this movie has not even hit theaters yet. So the upcoming Toy Story 4 has already become the new record holder for the best first-day pre-sales for an animated movie on Fandango. And the previous record holder in that spot was last year's Incredibles 2, which became the movie with the highest opening weekend of any animated film ever. So, and it's also, I believe, the second highest grossing animated movie of all time, right behind Frozen. So the idea that Toy Story 4, in its first 24 hours, um, is already outpacing Incredibles 2 in terms of Fandango ticket sales probably is very good news, more good news for Disney and Pixar. Um, do you guys think that Toy Story 4, I mean, look, there was a huge gap in in between Incredibles movies where uh, the internet in particular was seemed like it was frothing at the mouth for many, many years to see an Incredibles 2. Um, I think the situation is slightly different with this Toy Story franchise in that it has been several years since Toy Story 3. I think that movie came out in 2010. But the the franchise arguably ended in like a satisfying way for people. Um, but this these numbers sort of indicate to me anyway that people are very much still on board with exploring these characters in the theater. Um, do you guys think that this movie has the chance to overtake Incredibles 2 as the the movie with the highest opening weekend of any animated movie? Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a very strong chance here. Uh, Incredibles 2 is, um, there was, what, what a 14-year gap, whereas this is closer to a decade. Uh, either way, I don't think you can underestimate how much people love these characters. I mean, we're weary adults, whereas there are kids born in 1996 who have not seen a world without Buzz, Woody, and all of them. And this is them what you know our childhood favorites was growing up this is something that, that they is ingrained into people who are now functioning adults possibly with children of their own and i think that's going to play into a lot of the people going to go see this movie and that that's literally what pixar does it and what disney does when it's at its best it gets you young and keeps you hooked on it and you just get attached in a way that you don't get attached to other characters and i think we're going to go we're, we're probably going to see a movie that's going to at least, I think, rival the box office success of Incredibles 2. Yeah, so Incredibles 2 opened with uh, $180.2 million. I just want to get guesses from you guys on where you think uh, Toy Story 4 is going to fall. I'm going to say that they're going to hit... Uh, I was going to say they're, they're going to hit 200. I'll, I'll, I'll pull back just a little bit. I'm going to say 195 for their opening weekend. What do you guys think? Any guesses? 196. Oh, Jacob, you son of a bitch. <laughs> HD. You know, I'll go as far as 200 because oh, wow. nostalgia right. is a drug and we are all hooked for life. <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, okay, so let's move on to yet another Disney story. And that is that Disney and Warner Media, and as uh, Jacob just shared with us in the Slack chat during this recording, now Sony Pictures as well, uh, they might pull their productions out of the state of Georgia if this abortion law passes. HT, what do we know? Yes, so um, after uh, being long silent on this issue, Disney has finally broken that silence uh, in the form of uh, Disney Company CEO Bob Iger, who said that it would be very difficult for them to continue filming in Georgia if the abortion law goes into effect. This abortion law, we I think we've talked about in the podcast before, is the ban on abortion if a doctor can de de detect a fetal heartbeat, which is about six weeks into pregnancy before many women know they are pregnant. Uh, the Republican governor, 
uh, Brian Kemp signed this law to into um, sign this into law on May 7th, but it may still yet be contested in court. Um, but this law has uh, caused quite an uproar in Hollywood and in the film and TV industry. And a growing number of productions and companies have um, taken their stance against uh, this law and against um, working in Georgia. Georgia has become a big scene for um, both industries because of a big tax credit that they offer to um, any companies that um, have productions or post-productions in the state. But um, Disney, now Warner Media, and as you said, Sony have uh, voiced their um, op- opposition to the Georgia law. So, HT, we talked about this on the podcast a couple days ago when you weren't here. I think it was me and uh, Peter and Brad. And we were talking about the sort of two sides to this um, this issue, right? Like the idea of pulling out of the state entirely uh, as maybe um, inspiration for people in the state to sort of protest and, and make enough noise to potentially get the lawmakers to overturn this decision. Or what, uh, you know, some other people, even people who... Um, are liberal leaning are suggesting, which is to stay in Georgia for these, you know, saying that boycotting the state is not a great idea and Mm -hmm. trying to convince people to stick around and sort of fight the fight from the inside. Um, Where do you fall on all this? What do you you think the best approach is here? Mm. That's a complicated issue because I don't know like all the inner workings of, of the film industry and I feel like a lot of people who are arguing for the latter are people who actually work in the industry and know that they can make a difference on the ground but I feel like with big companies like Disney and WarnerMedia and Sony um, if they don't voice their opposition if they don't use their um, platform to bring attention to how this abortion ban can be really harmful to just Georgia residents, but also people around the country, then, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause um, I think, yeah, this, you know, the, the idea of a boycott uh, while it's unfortunate that it affects a lot of people who are, you know, residents and who are working and who don't have anything to do with the law, it will uh, make such a major blow on like the Georgia economy that the government will have to pay attention um, so I am, I think I support more like, uh, the threat of boycott, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, Disney making this kind of statement, I wish Bob Iger had made something that was made a statement that was more, um, concrete rather than saying, Oh, it would be very difficult. You know, this is a complicated situation. We want to watch it carefully. Um, I wish he would say something more along the lines of we have this strong position, and we want to stand by it and we want Georgia to do something or else we will, uh, you know, like definitively take action. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think just like waffling on this issue is what makes people who are, you know, working in this film industry in Georgia, they that's what make them, makes them suffer. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it is it's a complicated situation, but I am for. Uh, I think the former of what you were saying, just like as if maybe not a full on boycott, but something along the lines of like threatening one or, you know, calling attention to 
um, this issue. Right. Yeah. And and the bill, I think, is expected to go into effect on January 1st of 2020. So there's still a little bit of time, um, you know, and all sorts of legal challenges are probably going to come in between now and then. So I'm sure this is not the last that we'll hear of this, but hopefully this won't have any negative effect on the people on the ground yet. Although, you know, we've already talked about some productions you know, already pulling out and stuff like that. Um, but I, I think huge studios like this are not going to take any drastic measures until, you know, the ink is dry, basically. But like, they're not going to pull all the Marvel movies out of Georgia until this actually goes into effect, and then they're probably going to take a hard look at it and figure out if that's the right thing for them, them to do. So, uh, yeah, we'll be tracking this as it as it uh, progresses. Um, Jacob. Let's talk about, oh man, I, I just realized this is also another Disney project. I was thinking of this as a Fox thing, but that's uh, that's an old and outdated way of thinking at this point. But New Mutants is, uh, is now technically a Disney movie, and this movie is going to be completing its reshoots this year. Um, Jacob, what is going on with this film? Uh, I think it's being reported that uh, those are the reshoots this year. I don't believe it's going to happen. Are these movies going to fade away into exi- uh, non-existence? Um, but uh, producer Simon Kinberg, who's been a producer or writer on almost all the X-Men movies and is directing Dark Phoenix, uh, spoke to Digital Spy, who quoted him as saying regarding the reshoots, what's happening is we're going we're going to do reshoots this year on that film. It has a new release date from Disney. That's really it. Part of it was figuring out what the reshoots are going to be, the pickups, and the other part was getting the cast back together. And here's the thing. Uh, reshoots are pretty standard in Hollywood. All big productions do them. Uh, reshoots are not an instant sign disaster, even though people like to frame it that way for you know the sake of getting you know attention or snappy headlines. But when your film was scheduled to come out in early 2018, and now it's going to be out in early 2020... That goes beyond scheduling. That goes beyond a handful of problems. Something I'm looking forward to the to the tell-all story of what happened here, because this is unusual for a film to sit on a, a, a X-Men movie, a superhero block, tentpole blockbuster, who sit on the shelf for two years waiting to get the cast back together in quotes uh, for reshoots. This is crazy unusual, and I'm not convinced it'll be theatrically released. I still think we'll see it hit Hulu or Disney+. And I think the original plan of it being like an edgy, possibly R-rated horror superhero movie is going to be completely wiped out uh, by that point if it does see a proper release. So, at this point, if you're excited for New Mutants, um, know that Disney just needs to clear its plate. It's, it's, it's going to dump this, it's going to dump Dark Phoenix, and it's going to start rethinking X-Men. And it has a financial interest in maybe getting something out of this, squeezing something out of it. But if you're hoping for like a good movie at this point, I, I wouldn't keep your hopes up. I think something something's rotten here. Um, and it goes beyond, you know, a typically bad movie because they, they, they made and released X-Men Origins Wolverine. They thought that was fine. But New Mutants <laughs> is not fine. So something's up here. Yeah, uh, man, this is, I mean, it's sort of depressing to think about, too, because, like, this seemed to be the first time that they were making an X-Men movie that really took a chance on a stylistic level. Like, I mean, obviously, um, Logan and, and Deadpool and stuff like that, they, you know, that's that's a little bit different than the traditional um, X-Men saga movies or whatever you want to call them. But this is the first movie that they were talking about doing as, like, a full-blown horror movie. I mean, you mentioned it. It has... It had so much promise. It had like Maisie Williams and um, what's the guy's name from Stranger Things? Uh, Charlie Heaton. Um, those are two people who were associated with 
at the time, what were two of the biggest TV shows in the world, there was all the reason for the studio to capitalize on all of that and put this thing out in, in theaters and try to make their money back and, and much more. But yeah, it must have been something truly disastrous for such a huge delay like this. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just equally as curious as you are, Jacob, about like if somebody is going to be able to get to the bottom of the true story of what went down here, because um, yeah, this whole thing sounds totally nuts. Okay, let, let's talk about another comic book movie, and that is New Gods, which is being uh, co-written by Ava DuVernay and now comic writer Tom King. And I don't know who that is because I don't read modern comics, but Jacob, I know you do. And are you excited about this news? Tell people who Tom King is and why this should matter to them. Uh, Tom King is a fascinating comic book writer. He won an Eisner Award recently uh, for his take on Mr. Miracle. It was DC Comics miniseries for 12 issues, I think, last year, and that was excellent. He wrote Marvel's uh, The Vision miniseries. That was also excellent. I'm not sure if that also won him an Eisner. He was definitely nominated. By the way, the Eisners are the comic book Oscars, for those of you who don't know. And he's currently writing, in addition to other stuff, uh, he's the, the writer on DC's current Batman title, which is, you know, the <laughs> sweet writer's job. It is the job. Um, and King is... A really fascinating writer. He takes big, bold swings. Like, his vision and Mr. Miracle runs are really, really ambitious. And his Batman stuff is hit and miss, but in ways that, like, are... He's not just telling ordinary Batman stories. He's really going out of his way to hone in on ideas and concepts that um, I don't think have been explored before by other Batman writers. Like, one that always stands out to me is there's an issue... Um, where the entire thing is one long fight scene, more or less, with Batman's narration. Uh, and the narration from Batman essentially reveals that post his parents' deaths, uh, Bruce Wayne became depressed and suicidal, and Bruce Wayne ultimately realized um, late, late in his career as Batman that his him becoming Batman is an elongated suicide attempt. He does not realize that's what it was until now. And... Um, it's that kind of stuff. He, he's, he's going for weighty major concepts. So, yes, uh, Tom King being recognized as a guy to write a mainstream comic movie from a major studio is fascinating and crazy. And uh, enough with the New Gods to be able to, you know, speculate. The New Gods were created by Jack Kirby in the 70s. They're truly bizarre, deranged, out-there characters, alien gods at war with each other. So I, I can't speak to that. But I can speak to the combination of Ava DuVernay, this very empathetic um you know, um, strong-willed filmmaker who has very unique perspectives on the world, um, in, as we see in movies like Selma, teaming up with Tom King, who is the, a master of looking into the interior core of DC characters and saying, I wonder what makes them tick deep down, is a combination that I really can't get enough of. H.C., have you read any of Tom King's stuff? I know you dabble in comics here and there as well. I've actually, I've only read um, the Grayson series he did, which is uh, the series in which Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Nightwing, the former Robin, uh, gives up his vigilante life to work as a super spy. And there is a really fun um, sort of uh, cheesy spy um, espionage angle to this story I didn't read a lot of it I read like the first I think three issues or something but I really enjoyed it and I felt like uh, Tom King had a great grasp on Dick Grayson who's one of my favorite um, Bat family characters so I like him I'm really excited to see what he does with this um, I 
feel like what I've seen of him so far is mostly just character-driven stuff, so I haven't seen some of his bigger, more ambitious concepts, mm -hmm. which I feel like New Gods definitely is. But um, I'm, I'm all for this. I'm excited to see where he and Ava DuVernay take New Gods. Um, Jacob, do you know, I think this is his first movie writing credit. Is that right? Uh, as far as I know, yes, it is. It, he's actually very new to comics. He was a, a CIA agent before this, and then he transitioned into comics and has spent the past three or four years blowing up and being the new big thing. So this is uh, just a, another like meteoric step for a guy who five years ago who he was. Wow, what a ride. Man, that's, <laughs> that's wild. Oh, that's why his uh, writing for Grayson felt so just fitting. Because yeah. he was a former CIA agent. That's, That's really, really cool. cool. <laughs> um, all right. So our, our last item today is uh, back in December of 2017, guys. I visited the set of The Lion King. And by set, I mean basically a warehouse in Playa Vista, California, where John Favreau, the director, uh, was shooting the movie in a really, really fascinating way. And I'm really not supposed to be talking about that part of it too much. There are several embargoes that we have that are sort of stacked with The Lion King. So the one about uh, exactly how the movie was being put together and all that stuff. Uh, I still have to wait a little bit to talk about that, but um, Disney did uh, let us publish our full interview with John Favreau that we did on the set, and it is very lengthy. And we actually broke it out into or broke aspects of it out into several different articles on the site today. But uh, so I, you know, this piece is pretty big, and I'm I'm going to link to it in the show notes, and I want to encourage everybody to go check it out because it's really fascinating. He talks about crafting the tone of the movie, sort of like how different it's going to be from the animated version, what you know, why he wanted to make this in the first place, the music, working with Donald Glover and Beyonce. I mean, there's like a lot of stuff in here. So instead of like really getting into the nitty gritty on all that on the podcast, I want to just send people to read that article and check it out. But I want to open the floor up to you guys really quickly because HT, I know you wrote one of those breakout articles and Jacob, you had to edit all of this. And so you, you've read all of Favreau's uh, comments here. And um, as people who were not on the set of this movie and have just been, you know, uh, privy to the Disney marketing and, and um, you know, they released character posters today that we wrote about and uh, what I guess the question is, have has any of um, Favreau's comments here changed your mind in any way about uh, your anticipation level for The Lion King or sort of uh, your understanding of what he is accomplishing or trying to accomplish with this movie? Um, HT, let's start with you. Not particularly. Um, I, I do admire and respect just like the technical innovations that Jon Favreau is making with this film. And I it is must be hard to do that with a, a film that is entirely CGI, photorealistic creations of of animal characters. And yet I do remain just cautious about this movie just because, you know, the animated film was such a masterpiece. And I still have yet to see how a photorealistic CG um, character can um bring forth all like the emotions and the expressions and the rich just um, style of the animated film to life. Uh, I think this was very indicative in like the character posters that you were just talking about in that they just kind of, they just look like stills of actual real life animals with random text of us uh, moved Hollywood stars slapped on top. And I, and we, it was a hilarious poster because it's just like, it's a lion, but it says Don Glover as Simba, and, but it looks like any other lion. So it's just, um, 
to me, I remain really cautious about this. I do think that John Favreau is really talented, and I I know like what he did with Jungle Book was great, but I do think with Jungle Book the accept, the um, difference is that you have the um, the main human character as that anchor, and having the photorealistic animals around him kind of gives more weight to the dire consequences that he had to face and like the death the threats that he had to face. Whereas here is just um, talking animals but like really photorealistic animals so you can only go so far with the expressions um so what i'm saying is no my my opinion hasn't changed (laughs) i think you bring up a valid point with the expressions and and you know that that is like the most memorable thing about the original movie is like the way that these characters look and react and and that anthropomorphic aspect of them really gives you it gives them a soul that um Mm -hmm. just a a direct um realistic rendering of them doesn't seem to have from what we've been able to see in the marketing so far but uh jacob what about you i mean you read like the this whole long um, interview what do you think about all this my big takeaway from this is that uh john favreau is doing what i think peter jackson wanted to do and what james cameron has always done which is with the backing of a major studio he's going to play with all the toys he wants and play around as much as he wants But unlike James Cameron, who essentially had unlimited backing to make his own world, Jon Favreau was being told, yeah, use the latest toys you have. You you still have to remake something that everybody's already seen before. That makes me nervous because nothing in this interview um, strikes me as being like, as convincing me why there needs to be a new Lion King movie. It doesn't mean it won't be a good movie. It doesn't mean it won't be exciting. But the interview is, yeah, the original is great. We want to capture that. Whereas something I'm really interested in is the technology and the stuff that's literally being invented to make this movie come to life. And that to me is so fascinating. And uh, I am eagerly awaiting all the behind the scenes featurettes on the making of this film more than the actual movie. And I'm prepared for it to be good. I want it to be good. I need it to be good because I want to like a live action Disney remake. I I need to at this point for me to have faith in this division of the company. Uh, But right now, there's there's an old Roger Ebert quote where he says, um, or I'm paraphrasing, uh, would a documentary of these actors having lunch be more interesting than the movie? If the answer is yes, the movie has a problem. And right now, I'm more interested in a documentary on John Favreau and, and a blank soundstage using his tech to make it come to life than watching *Remake of the Lion King*. I really hope I'm proven wrong. Fingers crossed, I'm proven wrong. Oh man, that is uh, that's a great Eber quote and or or paraphrasing of the quote. And um, yeah, I also hope that uh, that this movie ends up being more interesting than that because uh, as somebody who was on the set, that stuff was pretty damn interesting. So <laughs> we'll have to see. I haven't seen any actual footage from the movie really um, beyond what what's in the trailers. But I saw a little bit of test footage and stuff. But I'll talk about that later. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I think even even with our uh, hesitations, I think uh, Faro talked talks about a lot of interesting stuff that people who even might only have a passing interest in the Lion King might um, get a lot out of. So uh, check out that in the show notes. Uh, along yeah, with... and it should be said that Favreau himself, um, if I sound negative there, I, Favreau is my guy. He's one of my heroes. Keep doing what you do, Favs. I love you. <laughs> uh, so in addition to that, you can check out all of Peter's uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge coverage. I'm going to link to all of that in the show notes too. Um, and you can find more about Galaxy's Edge and Lion King and all of the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at SlashOne.com. And Slash Film Daily, this podcast is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on uh, iTunes, Google Podcasts, 
Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really, really, really helps us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show, spread the word, and we will talk to you tomorrow.